Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, April 6th, the We Want Wives edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Now, I know that we all want to talk about the finale of Big Little Lies. Yes. We do. Yes. 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 We're not going to do that. (laughs) We're not going to do that. Because we're going to talk about it in Slate Plus. Now, this sounds like a promo, but it's not a promo. (laughs) We are actually going to talk about it in Slate Plus this week. Um, Right, June? Yes, Hannah. And if you want to hear these Slate Plus bonus segments, now you can hear them free for 90 days. Just download our new iOS app at slate.com slash app, and you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. That's slate.com slash app. All right. Let's start with our first topic, Mike Pence, our vice president. A recent profile in The Washington Post of his wife, Karen Pence, revived this 15-year-old quote from Mike Pence about how he doesn't dine alone with another woman. Twitter went crazy. This was more evidence of his sexism, um, of his retrograde way of being. Um, So what do we think about this? Uh, First of all, this is a Billy Graham rule, right? Guys, did you read about the Billy Graham rule? Yes, indeed. It did. And that was really illuminating. It was, I was very struck. Well, what is it? Just- okay. So Billy Graham, the uh, famous evangelist, uh, came up with a series of, I think, five rules. But one of them, the one that seems to have stuck with us today and has been adopted by other people, uh, is that he was never with, an, he was never alone with a woman uh, and then Pence has an extension where he doesn't go to any place that serves alcohol without his wife. I'm not sure if that was a Billy Graham rule. I don't think that's, I think maybe that's a, a Pence corollary or something. Um, but yes, the Billy Graham rule is that never be alone with a woman. Um, so so the thing that I found rather, I don't know, encouraging or some some positive adjective about the Billy Graham rule was reading about how it came into being. So the first explanation that I saw, which I think is not true, actually, 
was that one time when he was on the road early in his career or his his mission, I guess, um, he went into his hotel room and there was a naked woman like on on his bed. And he felt that, you know, his enemies or maybe even the devil was trying to tempt him or you know, pull him off the path of, of his religious mission. Another explanation that I think actually has more uh, truth to it was that he was on a retreat with a number of other evangelists and they he asked them to come up with a list of things that often typically, I suppose, brought down uh, religious missions or evangelists. And they had this whole series, you know, they you know, the person who wrote about it said that they all came up with pretty much the same answers. And it was about money and about, uh, I don't know, various adultery. things. Yeah. And then, but the one that, again, the one that's really stuck was about adultery and, uh, you know, licentiousness and, and the sins of the flesh. And so, you know, that's why Billy Graham, that's why and when Billy Graham came up with this rule, which he, you know, stuck with well into his 80s uh, when, you know, the sins of the flesh would have been more of an achievement than uh, <laughs> than a sin. No, but Hannah, you must have had a lot of experience with this rule or come into contact with it a lot because of your, you know, you've done a lot of work with evangelist Christians, right? Yeah, and I never dine with a woman alone. So that's my... <laughs> It's one of my personal roles. Um, I yeah, it's been it was interesting. I have I have spent a lot of time among evangelical Christians. I spent a lot of time in a homeschool evangelical college, which I wrote a book about. And I would say two things. One, um, there, there's part of me that sees the rule as kind of interesting and healthy. Like I almost think of it as the same. You, you ever talk to people who are in open marriages? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And you know how they're like super honest about temptation and needs and stuff like that. It's it's kind of weirdly the same thing. But they'll like, both it, it love does those have comparisons. Like, <laughs> I, I know they both love it, but it is kind of an open acknowledgement that people want to stray and people will be tempted, and that marriage is actually difficult. Like there's a kind of twin honesty. You know, they both land in a totally different place, but but there is a similar beginning of the conversation, which I've always found interesting. You know, as opposed to people going in and saying like, "We will love each other forever." And everything's going to be great forever. Like, there's a weird um, honesty to it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I would say on the ground, um, when when this rule permeates a community, and, and we haven't made that distinction yet between, like, what are your rules for your individual marriage and right. do I care, or what are the rules for the community? But when the rule permeates a community, it actually weirdly puts temptation and sex everywhere. Yeah. Like you go, you go into an office and I remember this from from being around evangelicals all the time and it's like the dude will leave the door open or you drive in a car with someone and they'll insist that another person come in the car with you and honestly like it never crossed your mind right. that you could get with this guy ever. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> is he just restraining himself because he's just so into me? like right. it puts the possibility of 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 what's the right word here sin absolutely in every tiny stupid interaction that you have where it otherwise would not be so that's the weird twinness of it on the ground yeah it seems like it sexualizes situations that i would not have thought of mm-hmm. as sexual you know like like having having a meal with a coworker who happens to be married wouldn't really cross my mind that that was like a temptation island situation 
but uh, <laughs> in this in this framework, it like that's the starting off point. It's right. it's very. Um, I think that's what people find so strange about the rule. It's like you you then get this image of of Mike Pence as like uncontrollable animal, and you're right. like, wow, really that guy and. And it just, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know that it, um, you know, to them, it's a symbol again, and like someone else's marriage, not my marriage, but it, to them, it's a symbol of the strength of their marriage. But to me, it's like, if your marriage is strong, you should be able to have lunch with a woman and not be like, worried about straying the whole mm-hmm. time. You know, that is what's so strange to me. It seems to like, underestimate the bond. Right. And I have, to, you know, I just to as any discussion of this topic, you always have to, you know, do it, spend a moment to say, this is your marriage. This is your, you know, all of that. I'm just going to stipulate it. But the thing that's, that bothers me about it is there is a kind of a foregrounding of ego. Like you almost say, if you're a person who lives this rule, you're almost saying, I'm pretty important. Peeps are going to be after me. <laughs> they're, you know, t- they're going to be throwing themselves to try and take me off my mission. Right. And, you know, because because after a certain point, it's about people taking advantage of you and trying to bring you down and trying to, you know, trying to cause a scandal. And, you know, like Russian prostitutes Russian putting prostitutes. on putting on you a know, show, on you, for example, <laughs> common, common thing, you know, and. Okay, now Mike Pence is the vice president of the United States. Sure, he's somebody who people might want to mess with. But, you know, if if you it, when you first take this role and apparently they took it on early in their marriage it it just feels like it's it's elevating your status in a way that's immodest and in a way that kind of puts me off that person uh as as far as just on a human level but why can't it just be like we're all stray and we're all frail and do you have to be really like a big dude in order or a big woman to to recognize that there is you know that you in a long marriage might be tempted and that that's kind of a thing i just I mean, you know it just feels to me that the rule will not stop that if you are if if temptation is something that you're going to be prone to or that you feel that you're constantly fending off let me tell you, you're not going to succeed in fending it off. If that's an issue, like that's an issue. It's not about your religious beliefs or your status in life. You know, it, it maybe it's just time to accept. If you're so sort of wrapped up in temptation and, and possibility of adultery, then that feels like something else is going on. There's a childishness to it that also kind of bothers me. Like if you're an adult, you can be in a social situation with other adults. And th- if you can't, then it's all, it just feels there's a huge immaturity to it to me. Like, you know what? If you're in a professional setting, you need to just be professional and not be bringing sex into it and, you know, the possibility of temptation. Kind of what you were saying before, Noreen, like, just grow up. Yeah. Okay, but I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. All right. I was I was getting a drink with a friend who is a married woman, quite liberal, and she said, well, my first reaction upon reading about this and seeing all, you know, everyone on liberal Twitter, like making fun of it, she was like, who's my husband eating dinner with? Who are those bitches? <laughs> and then and then she's like, and then I thought it through and like, you know, he has female friends and like, whatever, I'll be fine with it. But there is this first, um, I think different situations uh, vary widely, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I'm sure that she would not have had that reaction had she heard that her husband was having regular dinners with a work colleague. But mm-hmm. if he were having regular dinners with like, you know, 
an unmarried work colleague, let's say, she might have been upset. So so I think it's just the hard and fast ruleness of it that seems odd. Whereas like I think probably most married couples have not not like quite as clear a version of this, but mm-hmm. they know perhaps that there are situations that might be a little funny. You know, I have to say, though, that I like the ruleness of it mm. because if you're going to do it, okay, this probably contradicts some things that I've already said, but if you're <laughs> going to do it, like do it across the board because I see myself like, you know, the, or you say, um, I not, don't normally have dinner with women, but I'll have dinner with you. You're like, what? So I'm not your type? Is it something about me? Like, that would be really insulting. Right. So, right. like, you've got to kind of be consistent right. about it so as not to be rude. Right. What yeah. about the sexism, the potential sexism of it? So the real problem with a rule like this is that, you know, he's he's a, he's a public official. Um, he has women working for him. He hires women. Does it put women at a disadvantage if he makes this across the board rule in his professional life that he can't effectively have a casual social interaction with a woman who works for him? Like, does it does it put the men and women who work for him on a not even playing field? I think that's what people were uh, were objecting to in general. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's I mean, I think that you want to be able to say, oh, you don't have to do lunch. You know, you don't have to do business over dinner. You don't have to do business over lunch even. But that's just not the way the world happens. You right. form bonds with your coworkers, you know, outside of meetings and um, you form bonds with your bosses outside of meetings. And yeah, it just it seems like the all the soft ways that you can sort of gain power in an office uh, would be like closed off to those women. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're talking about, you know, dinners uh, and meals as if they're all fancy occasions. But often you're just like working late in the office and say somebody like Mike Pence, who in his work as a uh, congressman, as a governor, I don't not really so sure as a vice president, but almost certainly surely. Um, you know, there's a lot of late nights where you are forced suddenly to, you know, be in the office much later than usual. Food appears, you know, like what does a meal constitute? Does, you know, does everybody have to scatter when <laughs> when food is served? Um, it, it's, you know, and it's I also think that we should point out that there may be women who live this rule. You know, when Ruth Graham wrote about this rule much more sympathetically than many of us have, because she, like Hannah, she's. Uh, you know, spent time reporting in evangelical communities and, you know, was not as freaked out about it as many of us are. And she spoke with various pastors and so on. And one of the pastors was a woman. So, you know, we also need to remember that sometimes women will be putting themselves in this position and, and taking on the Billy Graham rule. And that so although given the state of our world, most likely these important people will be men. But Women could do it, too. And I'm just guessing that there might be more outrage, uh, you know, that by the men who's like, I can't work for you. I can't work late. You know, it seems like it leads to a sort of a sex segregation that's all too familiar uh, to me from my, uh, you know, separatist days. But I don't think it's really what we, you know, it's OK in a small social circle, but that's not how we do business. And it's certainly not how we should be running governments. Yeah, I think as an individual marriage rule, you do what you will. I actually thought that Ruth Graham piece was 
excellent. Like she brings in a, a quote from Tanahasi Coates talking about his own marriage and how he has what does he call it? The gate latch guardrails. Iron the guardrails, exactly, that he basically follows this rule in his own marriage. You know, the temptation is in, you know, why am I having this second drink? Like you you kind of put barriers in early uh, if you want to preserve your marriage. So so is it so is it so you know yourself and as an individual rule for your individual marriage or even just for yourself, it's fine. Um, but in a professional setting, it does seem like a problem. Like Ruth Graham talked to a woman who said, you know, he, Mike Pence has plenty of women working for him. Right. It's not that blatantly sexist that he doesn't hire women in upper level positions, but that it essentially puts a scarlet letter on the women. Yes. Like they're a liability, they're a problem, um, they're causing issues, you know, they have to be workarounds so that they can work there. So it essentially it 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 it, it by necessity relegates women kind of not in easy and natural part of the ambitious workplace. They're kind of a problem in the workplace, well, you know. And it probably, if you really think about why your boss doesn't want to have lunch with you, it probably makes you uncomfortable because yeah. then he's, you know, you have to grapple with the fact that he's seeing you sexually in some mm -hmm. way, like mm -hmm. whether he is or not, mm -hmm. it just puts you in that position. Yeah, I like what you said, June, that actually sort of a mature professional person, like, you know, it's a rom-com trope, you know, right. can women, women and men ever really be friends? It's not like we don't understand that this is an issue, but as as reasonable grown-ups, we can just kind of keep that in check, right? Like, even if you're attracted to somebody you work for or with, if you want to maintain your professional relationship, you just kind of work through that, you know? Keep it going. Attracted to Keep people in the office. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> All right, listeners, if you have any similar rules in your marriage, any equivalent of the guardrail that you put up for yourself, we are curious. Let us know about it. Tweet it to us or email us doublexgabfest at slate.com or go on our Facebook page and let us know. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, our next topic, abortion on television. After years of tiptoeing around the topic or surrounding it with shame and tears, TV is taking an increasingly blasé attitude towards abortion. Shonda Rhimes has worked it into many of her primetime dramas. Our best example is from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <clears throat> it involves middle-aged mom Paula, whose doorbell rings and her teenage son says offhandedly, Mom, I'll get it since you just had an abortion. I didn't see. I watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I didn't happen to see that scene, um, although I read about it everywhere. Uh, that is pretty offhand. I would say that's like as cash as it gets, you know? It was very striking that both in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin, which are kind of paired on the CW, even though they don't air on the same night anymore, there were middle-aged women having abortions at very close to the same time. And it it was just, it felt like we're in a new era. And do you think the fact that they're middle-aged is significant here? They weren't sort of like, you know, high school girls who had, had you know, made a mistake or whatever? Well, statistically, uh, women who already have children 
are more likely to have abortions. Like that is a that is a stereotype on the order of, you know, the welfare queen. Like mm-hmm. it is not true that the, that the majority of people having abortions are like lascivious teenagers, you know. Right. And it's I wonder if people the, with children, if the showrunners like had that stat in mind as they were deciding. I mean, both Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin are run by women who are very political and very conscious. But I think also that when you have a plot line like that, that in both cases was just kind of, you know, very casually introduced in Jane the Virgin, Jane's mom, Jomara, uh, discovered that she was pregnant after having an affair with someone who she wasn't in love with. And she's a grandmother and she really didn't want to, you know, start over. She has a young grandson um, and it just wasn't right. And it was handled very casually. She had a medical abortion, too, which is common in real life, but rarely rarely shown on television. And so the drama of that experience was in her telling her mother with whom she lives and is very close so there was still drama, but it wasn't the typical one. And you don't always want to have the same old story of shall I, shan't I, which, you know, again, in real life would clearly be a question, but it's one that's been presented on television a million times. Do you guys remember the first time you saw an abortion on TV? I, For me, it was Dirty Dancing. Um, oh. You know, there was just like, <laughs> there was just... Um, you know Penny, who's 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 the kind of forward dancer girl. Um, she she has an abortion, and that's how Baby gets her big part and gets to dance in the show. And there was so much like, oh my god, she like I don't even know that they said what she was doing because mm-hmm. I remember it stuck with me as a kid because it like took me a few times of watching and maybe a few years later to figure out what was going on. Like you just knew there was just some bad shit, but you didn't know what exactly like it was very soap opera huh. you know um have, do you guys remember any moment like that i can't i i can't really remember that i'm trying to think um i mean i think when when i was watching sitcoms as a kid and in, in sort of like the 90s that was definitely the era of um you know like she's thinking about it oops there was a miscarriage yeah. that very conveniently happened you know yeah. that that has been um, something that TV creators relied on just because it sort of got you out of it's like get out of school free card kind right. of thing. Like you had the, you know, the wrestling with the moral implications of it, but you also didn't actually have to show your character making a choice that, you know, uh, might alienate some viewers. Um, I mean, and let's face it, there is kind of a logistical element here of where, um, you know, TV showrunners, TV writers want drama. They want to have dilemmas. They want to have questions that characters are pondering. Usually the characters in shows uh, are of childbearing age, but they very rarely want to actually introduce a child because that's just, (laughs) you know, that's just a big headache as a showrunner. As for making your show, it's just going to introduce a lot of logistical nightmares. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not altogether surprising that they wouldn't want to actually introduce a child but there's no you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over well and on girls which we've all been watching this season i think and it's no spoiler to say that hannah is pregnant and the shock there was not um the sort of surprise twist was that she didn't choose to get an abortion Mm -hmm. because you know girls in its like second episode ever showed a character going to get an abortion Portion and she didn't actually get it because right. she got her period. Yeah. But um, like the the like 
everyone is very worried about Hannah having this baby because they don't think that she's capable. I was wondering what what we think would be good or realistic for the portrayal of abortion, because you don't want a situation like you had earlier on where it was soap operatic and absolutely full of drama and horror. Um, but but you do want a situation where where the range of decisions are represented, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Hannah's decision. She decides to have the child, maybe an obvious child, um, the Jenny Slate movie, which I saw, it's it's kind of, it's not blasé, I wouldn't say. It's not like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's just, um, it's a thing, you know? Yeah. It's not a huge big thing. It's just a thing. It's like a, it's like a plot line. Like you see them actually go to the doctor. I mean, it's a thing she has to kind of wrestle with. And it, 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 it's maybe slightly more of a logistical thing than it is a kind of moral grappling. But I think probably that's, that's, there's a truth in that. Like there's a range of ways that people respond to that situation. And you want that range of ways reflected on television. I don't want to underestimate or let's not exaggerate the casualness with which Paul chose to have an abortion on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, although there was that great line when, you know, her son says the thing that you said she said that you mentioned earlier, Hannah. It wasn't just something that was that she undertook easily. You know, she was having problems in her marriage. She really wanted to go to law school. This is a woman uh, in early middle age who has felt frustrated with her career and is, is the greatest, the world's greatest paralegal, but wanted to go to the next step in her career. And, and there were many practical factors. Uh, so it wasn't that she she just undertook it casually. It just was the best thing for her. I It worries me if it becomes, if the portrayal becomes too casual, mm-hmm, frankly. Mm-hmm, um, I You know, we'll get to this in our third topic, but I do think we're in an era of backlash. And for most Americans, their views on abortion aren't black and or white, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people who are at the extremes on either side do see it that way. But for a lot of people, it is actually this thing that you might, you know, go back and forth on and, and end up one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that that there can be something alienating um, if it is just kind of like a tossed off. Ha ha ha. It's so great. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. this is how I'm handling this and I'm not even thinking about it. And just in this era of also reproductive rights being restricted, it worries me a little if that becomes, you know, just like badge of honor, we're going to have a a cool casual abortion on the show to show how like boundary breaking we are. Um, I don't know that that's what's happening, but like that I think would not be a development that's ultimately good for, um, you know, the way women's rights are talked about in this country. So the Catholic book Pro talks about this phenomenon. I reviewed the book for Slate. It came out <clears throat> a year, a couple, maybe a year or two ago. And her argument is that 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 essentially the right has moved the bar around the language of abortion such that and Bill Clinton did a lot to help this along that even the left has adopted the language of kind of moral um quandary so that it's become you know, it's become a kind of necessary evil, and we all have agreed to talk about it as a necessary evil. And what that crowds out of the conversation is the ability to just say straightforwardly, this is not the right time for me. You know, that's not to say that you feel all sorts of things underneath that, but it's perfectly fine for people to say, this is not the right time for me, and for us to all recognize that as a central part of women's advancement. And I would say that maybe the crazy ex-girlfriend plot 
implies something like that. You know, it's not like a casual ha-ha laugh line. I think the point they're making, and that's true of Shonda Rhimes too, is that that in order for her to get to where she needs to be, both in her marriage and her life, she can't have a child right now. And that's a perfectly reasonable decision that one should be able to talk about out loud, I yeah, think. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, we should also mention that uh, there was a a documentary on HBO that, well, it premiered on HBO this week called uh, Abortion Stories that was a very powerful and very kind of understated in a way um, portrayal of, it basically was filmed at a a clinic that does abortions. I don't know if it's just an abortion clinic. Uh, on the border between Illinois and Missouri. Missouri is one of the states where a lot of restrictions have been placed on uh, women's right to have an abortion. And so many women drive hours and hours in order to uh, have terminations across the border in Illinois. And it was a very straightforward, like just women telling why they were there. And there was a great range. There were many of the women had children and just couldn't take on another right now. There were lots of issues of poverty, of just access to to resources, uh, bad, bad relationships, uh, domestic violence. And the reasons were very... It's also a lot of women whose, whose babies uh, were not viable. Um, and it was really powerful and understated. And I think one of the things uh, that some uh, articles pointed out uh, that we read about this current sort of evolution in the way that that abortion is covered on television is that one thing that we don't see and we still don't see are the ways that these uh, restrictions affect women. Um, you know, the fact that you have to take two days driving backward and forward, that you, you know, that these, the the things that the pro-life movement is doing these days cause huge impediments to women taking advantage of their constitutional right. And that sort of thing is very rarely portrayed, partly, again, because of the logistics of television. Like, everything is speeded up. And what these restrictions do, usually, is slow things down. And that is just something that's that's very hard for um, scripted shows to take on. You know, so Carol Sanger's book about abortion, which just came out, which my friend Margaret Talbot reviewed in The New Yorker, is amazing on this topic. Just the day-to-day of these increasing restrictions, how paternalistic they are, the notion that women have to look at a sonogram because they don't actually understand what kind of decisions they're Mm -hmm. making, um, the way in which teenagers have to get permission from a judge. Like, she really gets deeply into Mm -hmm. this world of ever more onerous restrictions Mm -hmm. and how they affect people day to day. And it's true that that doesn't get reflected on television that much. And so the the sort of criticism of this kind of abortion TV is that it's bubble, like it's it's us talking from our liberal bubble where we have relatively easy access to abortion. Uh, But but I actually think it's good that TV keeps it normal, like Mm. keeps it normalized, keeps it in the conversation, um, because lots of people watch TV and TV is totally mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so so if you live in a state like Missouri or Oklahoma, which has increasing restrictions like here, you you know, wait, it's there's there's another norm being set by mainstream television. Mm. um, And it's good that they keep that other norm. You know what I mean? Hannah, I'm still thinking about the Bill Clinton um, changing the language around abortion thing. And, you know, I wasn't really 
um, a political thinker in the 90s. But but the safe, legal and rare formulation has always seemed like a good one to me and a good goal for people on the left to have. Um, it seems to get at a lot of things that, that we want, which is, you know, safe access to abortion and also to birth control and um, to sex education. And so I'm I'm wondering why why you think that that language change or lang- or that shift that happened in the 90s was bad. Well, Katha Pollitt's argument, which I found totally convincing after reading that book, is not that that language was bad, but that in the 25 years since that language, the bar has just been moved and moved and moved and moved to crowd out the very simple, this is not the right time for me. So that's become an impossible thing to say out loud or embrace or recognize. So mm-hmm. I don't think it was, you know, when he said it, maybe it was okay, but sort of 25 years later, um, it's led to the world that we live in now where... Um, where 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 just the bar is moved and it's not okay, which is why I appreciated all of these plot lines on television, which normalize it again. All right, point done. Yay, Bill Clinton. But <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but you know consequences. How about that? Can we can we land at that? <laughs> Our take on abortion. Yay, Bill Clinton. But, but consequences. Consequences. That's that's where we land. All right. Third topic, do millennial men want stay-at-home wives? <gasps> this one totally alarms me. There's this <laughs> survey, <laughs> it really does, that has tracked the views of high school seniors for 40 years. So it's a real survey. This isn't like a bogus study. It's a real survey. Uh, it's just a survey about attitudes, but since it's been going for so long, I consider those real because uh, they ask the same questions for 40 years. It has recently turned up a trend that I personally find alarming Young men are not that into the power wife. So here's a question that they ask. It is much better for everyone involved if the man is the achiever outside the home and the woman takes care of the home and family. So in the 90s, 83% of men aged 18 to 25 did not agree with that statement. And in 2014, 72% only disagreed with that statement. So what the hell? (laughs) Noreen, you're the closest I got here. What is going on? I am technically a millennial. I would like to say for the record that this is young millennials who believe this, not not my cohort of millennials. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, It seems like backlash is the word of the hour. Um, These are people who have come of age probably for the most part in to income households or maybe, you know, households where the woman is the breadwinner um, or they have a single mom. All of that has increasingly been common. Um, so it seems like they're looking at the world that they grew up in and um, longing with nostalgia for something they never knew. Um which... I hate that explanation. People say two-income households in these stories as an explanation. They're like, these kids grew up in two-income households. What the, what the hell is wrong with a two-income household? I like, don't think anything is wrong with it. I'm just I'm like trying to situate them. They're they. It's not like they're they're saying I want a marriage just like my parents because that for the most part is not the kind of marriage that their parents had. So they are they must be reacting. I mean, maybe it's just like kind of a punk thing. Like my parents have this kind of (laughs) marriage and so I don't want that. I mean, you know, I also saw some people saying this on Twitter, which is kind of true. Like who doesn't want someone to like take care of them and, you know, pick up the dry cleaning and do all the laundry? Like I would sort of like that. Um, 
But yeah, I know. But if the question were if one person is the achiever outside the home and another person takes care of the home and family, yeah, sure, that's a dream I can get on board with. You <laughs> yeah, know, but, I, <laughs> but it doesn't say that. Yeah, and yeah. I and I and I, yeah, I guess that's a problem of a long running uh, question. If you ask the same question over many years, it's not likely to be a particularly woke question. But I also <laughs> wonder, even <laughs> that's a good point. I wonder if how many woke women would if that if a question was. Um, presented in the way that you just uh, stated it, Hannah, how many people would see an equal opportunity or a gender equal uh, stay at home possibility? Mm. I think people everywhere default to a woman staying at home for whatever reason. Uh, I, you know, we should also note that, uh, so this study was between 1994 and 2014. But then a couple of days later, the numbers for 2016 were released. And those numbers were less alarming. So there was still a rise in like traditionalism among high school seniors, but it was uh, not as pronounced as for 2014. And so I don't think people would have said uh, the millennial men want to stay at home wife from the 2016 numbers. And also, uh, despite what you said, Hannah, it was pointed out that Although it has been going on over a long period, the numbers are actually not that great. So that the number, for example, the number of young men in that in the um, sampling may only have been about sixty or eighty. Mm-hmm. So it is still, you know, there's always these problems with sample sizes. I'm sure it was all done, you know, using all the rules of studies and so on. But that maybe we should put the brakes on, uh, you know, sending young millennials to re-education camps in the country at this point. <laughs> but Hannah, Yeah, well, I found that really, uh, sorry, I just, fa- I found that really interesting. If I were writing about this, I would have called the researchers who were Joanna Pepin mm-hmm. and David Cotter and asked them, you know, these minute fluctuations are odd. Like they, you know, you, that's always a problem when you're trying to look at trends like this. Like yeah. why would it change over three years? Uh, there must be some explanation for that. Like are high school seniors exquisitely sensitive to trends of the moment? You know, it suggests that maybe it suggests that there is this kind of like latent nostalgia always there. It's always something that mm-hmm. people are nostalgic for because it is a more peaceful setup. It just is inherently, no matter what I would like to think. And so so people only feel free to express it at certain moments. Like in the Trump era, obviously, people are going to feel more free to express that sentiment given his marriage, given the signals that are sent out to the kind of what's the right word for this culture where men have a place and women have a place, um, which which people feel Patriarchy. free to embrace. At this <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, each in its own, each in their own place, each in his or her own, own place, whatever it is that people are always nostalgic for. Anyway. Well, do you, so do you have a better explanation, though, if, if this one is displeasing to you? Like, is there any way in which this is not a reaction, you know, or, I mean, there has been in the sort of Trump era and the lead up to the Trump era, this resurgence of like men's rights groups, Mm -hmm. which is obviously sort of, to my mind, a like um, lashing out. Is it part of that? Like what, what are reasonable explanations for this? 
It is part of that, and I think that is extremely real. I think whether you want to call it a backlash or the kind of cultural resistance to the rise of women or the sense that now people are free to express, the sense that men feel frustrated uh, at, 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 at women kind of owning lots of spaces that men used to own in different ways and different classes, I think that is extremely real. And I think that Trump ascendance has allowed that to flourish and express itself, sometimes in really, really ugly ways, like in the men's rights movement, which is fairly violent and has close links to domestic abuse, which people have written about, but some in sometimes not in violent ways, sometimes in just ways that are nostalgic, you know, um, like you said, Noreen, like I would like a wife, like I would mm-hmm. like for, for sure. a wife who would be home and taking care of my kids and, you know, that dinner would be ready mm-hmm. and I would not have to come home and scramble and make dinner like I really would. Mm-hmm. I honestly would like a wife. And so I think everybody would like a wife. Yeah. And so I think when you honestly answer a question like this or feel the freedom to honestly answer a question, question like this, that's that's the answer you're going to get. You know? Yeah, but with, with high school kids, it's not grounded in the reality of like, they've never done the thing where they go to work and then they run an errand after work and they come home and then it's like nine o'clock and they haven't made dinner. Like they haven't grappled with that to them. They're just like living in a vacuum and they're like, what's my dream? My dream is like, and, and so for a while it was this very utopian, like we will, you know, share duties together way back in 94. And now, and now the dream is like, you know, apron kind of picket fence situation. I mean, I I guess I have two theories. One is that it's easy for me to say that the two-income household is 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 fine because it's not fine for a lot of people like mm-hmm. it's stressful mm-hmm. and people work really hard or they work double shifts or whatever so mm-hmm. i think idealizing the double shift household the two income household people don't like it you know it's like stressful and it's too much work and your parents attention is 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 scattered and it doesn't seem nice so i think that's definitely a thing um and then kind of the broader more philosophical thing is i do think you know we say the word backlash the problem with the word backlash is that it's temporary. It's Mm -hmm. like a wave that comes and goes. Whereas I think the underpinning of the backlash right now is this tribalism, you know, Mm -hmm. this sense that we have to return to a a uh, post-liberal era where we have to recognize that each tribe has its place, like ethnically, ethnic, ethnicities, genders. That's the that's the kind of real alt-right philosophy that drives so much of this. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell how deeply rooted or real that is, or how much it appeals to people, or how much how long it will last. But I but it's a thing out there. You know, you know? I, not to get too personal, but you have at least one teenage son. Um, do you how do you see any of this in him or because having grown up with a in an egalitarian household is he re- does he reject that in his in his attitudes or does he embrace oh it? my god I wish I had asked him. I never thought of that. He once said something so insulting to me. It was a few years ago when he was younger. Where it was, he was really young then. Oh my god! I should not even admit this. It's so insulting. But he was like playing house. This is a thing no mother likes to say. He was like playing some kind of game, and it was like his babysitter, our beloved babysitter of many years. This is when he was younger. She's not our babysitter anymore. And he had her play the mom role, and he was like, "Well, you just don't like to do the mom things." And I was like, what oh the God. fuck? Like, 
you know, I'm sure lots of working mothers have that like painful story. Luckily, I only have that one painful story. Um, so, um, so it might be that he doesn't like it. But I will ask him and report next week. I never thought to ask him what he what he thinks about this. Like, if he if he got married, he always says he's not going to get married. So maybe that's that's already the insult. I got my answer there, <laughs> but. <laughs> But I'm going to ask him and report next week. Like, if you had a wife, would you? How would you want to have your household arranged? You know, he might. There must be some strain of millennial men, and he's not a millennial, I guess. But there must be some strain of millennial men that are like, let my wife work. You yeah. know, I think I think my age group, the sort of older millennial men, anecdotally, I think they are like very into that idea. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well. It takes all kinds. Um, last question. So, <laughs> we should end every segment that way. It takes all kinds. <laughs> it takes all kinds. Um, what? Um, what? Um, what would if you if you were dating someone, Noreen, and they and you knew they answered yes to that question that they preferred that arrangement? Deal breaker. Really? Yeah. All right. I like my job. I know yeah. when it comes down to the practical question, like, so you'll be giving up your job? Like, hell no. <laughs> but if it's just like, wouldn't it be great if, if only one person would work? Like, sure, it would be great. <laughs> but when it's so, re- what in the practical nature, in the practical realm, what does that mean? Uh uh-uh, uh. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. The person I didn't marry before I married David was the reason I didn't marry him was because I sensed that he, in his heart, answers yes to this question like just in the way he talked about life or his mother i just knew that like he thought women working was cute do you know what i mean yeah like he didn't say anything like that ever and he was you know totally into i was like just starting to be a writer and he was totally into it but i could just tell that he thought like it wasn't it was it was make-believe like in the way some people talk about their moms you're like their jobs are make-believe they're Uh not real Uh well you made the right choice good call good call exactly thank you david All right, let's move on to our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have today? I was on a plane recently and watched a movie that I probably wouldn't otherwise have watched. I watched it a lot when I was younger um, and really loved it, but hadn't seen it in decades. My Best Friend's Wedding. Great movie. If you haven't seen it in a long time. um, Is it the Julia Roberts movie? It's the Julia Roberts movie where she tries to break up her best friend's wedding. Um, The best friend is marrying a 20-year-old Cameron Diaz, um, who's like a, you know, a billionaire heiress. Uh, And it's just really great. We talked a few episodes ago about, um, you know, rom-coms with unhappy endings. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm really spoiling anything to say that things don't go that well for Julia Roberts in the end. Um, but I loved it. It was sort of a realistic assessment of how this situation would have gone. It like, it did not try to cover, like oftentimes in rom-coms, people act crazy and Uh that's not acknowledged that they're acting like a crazy person and it's outside the bounds of regular society. And at every step there were characters, you know, Rupert Efforts character is kind of like, no, you were, this is not going to go well for you. You're crazy. This is, don't do this. Um, so if you haven't seen that in a long time, rewatch it. Also, her clothes are weirdly great with the exception of one baggy suit. Um, but, but the, <laughs> that would be the one type that I would like. <laughs> but mid 90s style has come back around. Um, so yeah, my best friend's wedding. It really pleases me to think of you like on an airplane settling in and watching like a good rom com. It does. Like oh, that yeah. seems like such a happy place. I just want to <laughs> note too that it's the second recommendation of a movie that's been watched on the airplane in, exactly. in the last month or so. From me? 
No, uh, no, because I would have Mad oh, Max, yeah. and it was like oh, yeah. so freaking stressful. Like, like locked in there in my middle seat watching Mad Max was just like beheading and blood and yeah. guts, and I'm like freaking out. And the people next to me are like reading their, you know, accounting books or whatever. It was just so alienating. Anyway, I'm going a little highbrow here. Because really, like, all of my recommendations are, like, besides Shit Town, what have I been doing? Like, besides yeah. listening to Shit Town. So let's just caveat it that way. Um, I'm reading this Jeanette Winterson book, which mm. is called The Gap of Time. Um, and it's a retelling of Winter's Tale, which is going to make it sound like highbrow. And it's actually not. It's just a, it's about a kind of insane jealousy. Uh, and, and a lot of very 2017 kind of queerish characters. And takes place in a fake place called New Bohemia. Um, lots of intrigue and drama. It's a truly fabulous novel. I really love it. Um, and then if you're not, if you can't handle a whole novel, did you guys read that uh, trauma facing deportation, that story in The New Yorker by Rachel Aviv about the Swedish children who are facing deportation fall into this kind of unconscious spell and they stop eating uh, mm-hmm. and they stop doing It's a real spell. Like they have to be, you know, intravenously fed because they're oh. about to be deported. It is one of the strangest and it's only happening among a sort of certain kind of refugee kids in Sweden. Mm. It's a fabulous story. It's really, really wow. great. Huh. So that's all I got. That's a lot. June. So I want to recommend a show that I've only watched two episodes of, but I found them really interesting. And if it wasn't for S-Town and Big Little Lies and all of the other things that have been grabbing my attention, I would have dived in and experienced more. But it's a series that is on Netflix. It was recently added and it's called Ingobernable. So it's in Spanish, but you can watch it in English because it's available in many versions. You there are there's dubbed there's a dubbed English version. Uh, there is a Spanish. You can listen to it in the original Spanish, but with English uh, closed captions, subtitles. So there are you don't have to speak Spanish to uh, to understand it to to experience it fully. Um, but it is uh, so. It is a Mexican story. It's based there. And uh, it stars the great Kate del Castillo, and she is the first woman of Mexico. That is to say, she's married to the president, the first lady of Mexico. She's married to the president. And in the first moments, uh, not really a spoiler because it's the first moments, she kills the president who is, well, actually, we don't know if she killed the president. It appears that she's killed the president, but she says she didn't. And he was beating her at the time. So that is the start of, I think, 13 episodes. And she goes into hiding. We learn that she's actually involved with uh, a case that mirrors, of course, a real Mexican case of uh, some people who went missing, uh, probably because of corruption. And so um, even though I've only seen two hours of it, I am I'm fully on board for the rest. Uh, and it's a great way, too, if you want to just kind of practice Spanish or you just want to watch it in English, as I said. So it's called Ingobernable, Ungovernable in English. Sounds great. Mm. Yeah. It's called Latin soap opera, but mm-hmm. more highbrow. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verlin Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network and our intern, Daniel Schrader. The X Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster at itunes.com slash panoply. 
our show page to get our recommendations or find out what we talked about, slate.com slash xx. Facebook page is facebook.com slash double xgabfest to leave comments or tell us what you think we should talk about next time. Email is double xgabfest at slate.com or you can tweet us at xxgabfest. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen. We will talk to you again in two weeks.